So it's uh, half time uh, just after lunch, uh, so I need to wake you up, okay? Um, so I'm Philippe. Uh, obviously, I'm coming from France. Uh, you, you listen to it. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy to, to get it. Okay, so what I'm going to do today is to give uh, another look at um, what I call the team startup fit, which comes way before the product market fit. Something which is pretty uh, important because when you, we see the failure rate of startups, we often uh, look at the fact that we didn't find the product market fit, we didn't have the time, we didn't have the money, whatever, but our ego prevents us to consider the team. However, it is one, one, key, one key element. This was triggered 15 years ago when three of my best friends uh, that are running uh, as high-level uh, high executives in corporates decided uh, all together, and they were running in, uh, in different uh, corporates, they decided to quit their job in order to, um, to start a startup. It was a midlife crisis for them. They said, uh, and it happens, around 40, uh, this is the kind of thing that happens. Uh, and um, they said, you know what? I've been always performing very, very well in corporates. However, I have this fantasy, I've not done my startup yet. I've not, uh, not done my business yet. And I would like to use my skills, my performance, to the service of my new company, of a startup. So they decided to quit. The first one, uh, started to learn, with a lot of humility, uh, hamburgers, which for a French guy is a kind of oxymoron. Right? It's a, a French fast food. Uh, it's not exactly what we're looking for. Anyway, uh, he went to the kitchen, learning, uh, learned how to cook uh, hamburgers, learned how to clean the kitchen, how to manage the team in the kitchen, and now he is uh, managing multiple restaurants. Okay, so he got a franchise from a, a famous... Uh, uh, chain of restaurants, and uh, he's happy, he's wealthy, everything is fine for him. The two others, however, had a different path. Um, they failed, and what is even more embarrassing is that it took them two to three years in a long agony to fail spending all their resources, all their money, and for one of them, his relationship uh, in his marriage went, uh, uh, went over. So, significant problem. And at that time, 15 years ago, uh, uh, or it was between 15 and 12 years ago, uh, if you understood the story, um, I wonder why this could happen. And in fact, I have seen failure over failure a number of times with people that were very successful in their business. And I started to, of course, to try to understand why. So I'm going to, for, for this purpose, to um, explain what happened partially through a live experiment that we're going to do here. And this live experiment is using a bike that I bought from France. It's, a, it's an MVP and it's a prototype, however it works. Let's have a look. It's a bike which has an inverted handlebar. So when you steer to the left, the front wheel goes to the right. Very simple, okay? And that's me, actually, um, where I'm driving the, riding this bike um, just to show that it is possible, okay? 
So the uh, interesting point is that for riding such a bike, inverting the handlebar uh, steering uh, is not that complex. Huh? It's, uh, this is the only change I've got on this bike, and the bike is here. So what I propose is to make a small experiment with somebody from the, uh, in the attendees. Yes. So who, uh, who would like to, to, to check? So uh, just a hint, it would be way faster if uh, you have, um, you play with video games. Okay? Mm. What, what do you mean? It will be faster? Yes, I want to volunteer. Sorry. Okay. So, you're welcome. And please applaud him because it's a, he took the risk. First, wait, 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 wait. One second. First, I want you to say that you're not going to sue me or you're going to... Yeah, absolutely not. Okay. I know you're an American. We sue or, you. Oh, you're good. Or, or, my, or my company or the organizers of the conference, I, if I, you are it yourself. Excellent. <laughs> okay. So, here is a bike. Actually, you, I, I will even have you on video. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So what I'm asking you, is it uh, too tall? A little bit uh, lower? Yes. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. So I'm just asking you yeah. to do maybe six or ten feet. That's all. But six, you go six or ten feet. Six or ten feet, not more. Okay? okay? But you go very slowly. Otherwise, you will fail very fast. Okay. Okay? <laughs> okay. Okay, so. It goes straight really well, but it's counterintuitive. Ah, okay. So, thank you. Actually, uh, we're going to stop here. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you for. Okay, so what is the point uh, making uh, this uh, small bike experiment? Well, actually, when a bit lower, please. something which is pretty simple. You know all of you how to ride a bike. You learn that. And uh, a bike, riding a bike, you never forget. 
the past success you have had riding a bike makes you think that just a simple change is pretty easy to handle, right? And this is why, uh, actually, to, to learn how to ride this bike takes multiple days. Uh, your brain needs to make the right connections, and the connections are made at night. So it's absolutely impossible to do that in a few seconds, a few minutes, or even a few hours in one session. Okay? So, what are the deadly biases we can extract from this experiment? The first one is called the overconfidence bias. The overconfidence bias happens when you are sure about yourself, so you've got a good drive, and you believe that because you have had success in the past, you will have always success in the future, whatever. And this is a very deadly bias, because if I have asked uh, to the members of the audience how many people would think that it would take a few minutes to adapt, actually, the vast majority uh, would have said, I will do it very quickly, and just need to focus, and it will work. And this is not the case. The second bias, which is linked to this overconfidence bias, is the planning fallacy. Planning fallacy means your estimation of the time to uh, complete a task is way longer than uh, what you think. And it could be one order of magnitude, or even two orders of magnitude. So this is why I'm using this, because when, uh, when you've got some uh, executives that believe they have been successful and they can do everything they want, Actually, it's not true. So now you start to see the connection between my three friends and the two of them that failed and this exercise, okay? But then I had another question. It was not only about being overconfident. It was as well a question of being fit for making a startup while you were initially an executive in a big company. And I will come back to uh, the three horizon planning. So who, who knows about the three horizons? Okay, few people. So uh, it's based on a study which has been uh, made by uh, McKenzie uh, in 1999 uh, and three consultants that have written a book. Basically, you have your, uh, in a running business, you are running uh, uh, the horizon one, which is giving back some profit. Okay, so the activities that, run, uh, that are profitable are the horizon one. While you are getting money out of horizon one, you are preparing the next businesses. This is horizon two. And further in time, you're preparing the uh, upcoming businesses, which are even uh, maybe uh, uh, moonshots or stronger stage. So at the, same, at the same time in the company, you should be working on these four reasons. I mean, at least this is a theory which has been developed by uh, McKinsey. What is interesting is that we see those three horizons happening in many companies. In, uh, in uh, Coca-Cola strategy, for instance, it is very clear they have the uh, 70-20-10 strategy, 70% of the spending is done in Horizon 1, so on activities which are profitable now, and we know that every dollar spent here will get back uh, as, a, as a profit. 20% um, goes on new and promising trends, and 10% it's uh, things which are not actually proven and that needs to be tested. If you look at Google, we have the same kind of repartition, 70 2010, the 10% being the moonshots, uh, 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 which are called wild and crazy uh, within, uh, within Google. And so we see that for big companies. And you see Coca-Cola very uh, uh, in the food industry, uh, Google in the digital industry. And then we've got uh, Intuit. 
into it, and, I, and this has been the trigger for this presentation, actually. Three years ago, we had a presentation from Brad Smith, the CEO of Intuit, and uh, Jörg Molotti, uh, uh, VP uh, of Innovation at the time, and uh, they show uh, their repartition for these three horizons. And we see horizon one, we get money back, we get the cash, and this will, of course, fund the two other horizons, horizon two and horizon three. Horizon two, these are projects that you're going to scale up and bring to profitability to horizon one. Horizon three are the projects on which you want to have the love metrics, you want to have people to buy in, such as you prove you've got something. With a slightly different power partition, it's 60, 30, and 10%. But what is even more interesting in the presentations, and this is what triggered my mind, is the way they represented the teams that were working in the three horizons. In horizon one, you see a rowing crew, okay? And in order to get profitable, you need to have people aligned in the same direction, and you need to have people increasing their rowing speed in a regular basis. So you've got a very known objective, a very known line to follow, um, and, and you're going to row against that line. What you don't want in this team is to have a distraction. You don't want them to uh, deviate from, uh, from their objectives. And Horizon 2, however, it's a different kind of team. You've got some people who are um, going into rapids, avoiding rocks. They have a global direction, which is to get down the, down the river. Uh, and we know that there are some obstacles. So you need to be very agile. You, don't, you, you just know what is the global direction. In this case, to survive to the rapids uh, and, and, and to uh, basically to come to this uh, plane where you're going to row with another kind of team. And the last one is about uh, treasure hunters. So you need to find, uh, you need to use some hints, you need to, to use some observation in order to find out where are the treasures. Obviously the teams are not made by the same kind of people, okay? So based on that, I decided to look a little bit deeper on uh, what, uh, where the key consistence of, the, of, this, uh, of this team. So I'll come back to um, a figure which is the life cycle of a product or a service or an industry. You always start uh, to introduce a product or a service, then you grow, then you've got a maturity part, uh, which is, uh, and the value in time could be uh, very long. It could be very short in the digital age, but could be the industry of automobile, for instance, and could be uh, tens and tens of years. And then you've got a decline and, and an end of life. This is the reality of all products. The key point in companies is, of course, to get some relays of growth, such as you're going to compensate uh, the decline and the end of life. This is why we've got these three horizons. Now, if we look at the activities um, uh, for a product, we see that before ramping up and before introducing, of course, you need to discover the product and the service. So you have this first period, which is innovation and discovery. And guess what? When you look at the horizons, this is where we stand. The horizon one is the innovation and discovery part uh, that you need to have before making any sales. Or basically, you, will make, you might make some sales at the beginning, but this is not the point. The point is to make sure you've got some, uh, something to, uh, uh, to validate. If you look now at what kind of activities take place uh, in time, you see that the area of Horizon 3, this is where you are going to create new products. This is where you are going to discover new business models. 
if we speak about uh, extending to um, new customer segments or new territories, this is more likely something that we will find in the optimization part, which is Horizon 1. Okay? So new products, Horizon 1, it's more the evolution of, of existing products. And you see, we see it's a transition. Uh, it's not like there is a clear cut. Uh, it's a transition from uh, uh, the new product area to the evolution of existing products. Um, so what do you need for um, this to happen? You need, on Horizon 3, more innovation skills. While on Horizon 1, you need execution skills. And I say more because, again, it's a transition. You still need to have execution skills when you are innovating because you need to uh, make your experiments run. So you need to planify a little bit your experiment, even if you go very fast. Uh, you need to deliver on every experiment. So even if you have some innovation skills on the, on the left, you still need some execu execution skills on the left. As well, on Horizon 1, you might work on incremental innovation. And incremental innovation needs to have some, uh, some innovation skills. So you will find that as well under the name of exploration skills and exploitation skills. Actually, there is a lot of literature on the subject. And as well, discovery skills and delivery skills, okay? So these are uh, kind of synonyms. And um, this one is pretty interesting because this is a way uh, a group of, uh, of people has uh, written it in the innovator's DNA. Um, and um, it's about discovery, discovery skills against um, delivery skills. They found that there were five uh, uh, discovery skills. So what I didn't tell you is that I started my life as an entrepreneur. And the first time I failed, okay? Uh, I, I, when, you're in, when you're in French and in France, basically you don't say that we failed on a startup. This is not very good, okay? Uh, here, I don't, I don't mind. I know that it's part of the, of the journey to, to success. Anyway, what happened in this first startup is that I was still a student in the university, and I failed on, on two of those uh, five uh, skills that were discovery skills. Uh, we did, uh, way before uh, the time, some encryption software for Macintosh and PC. Uh, I, and we sold, uh, we sold some products, definitely. We invested all the money that we've uh, uh, got uh, selling the products into advertisement. But since we are technicians and not marketers, guess what? We spend everything. And we don't get any, uh, anything back from the, uh, the advertisement. So we failed. We stopped after one year. Got my uh, capital back, so which was already good. So we didn't spend everything. Uh, we just spent... Uh, some time, and we learned. However, the second startup, I succeeded, okay? I succeeded uh, not because I knew from Innovator's DNA, uh, uh, so actually I could come back on what I've done in the past and said, yes, I applied all the skills at that time, uh, so maybe it is uh, part of the DNA, maybe it's part of being smart, I don't know, but I, this is what happened. So I succeeded in doing that. What is very interesting is that um, what is claimed in the innovators' DNA as well is that as the organization grows, discovery skills get replaced by delivery skills. And this is a transition that I have shown you on this activity uh, life cycle. 
Now, when you look at the skills of the guys that you need to have, both innovation and, uh, and uh, execution, or both uh, discovery and delivery, you see that there is a chart in which some key people have been, have been charted by, uh, 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 by uh, the team that has written this book. Typically, if you take somebody like Steve Jobs, he will be uh, in the triangle part, which means he has very high discovery skills and pretty average delivery skills. And when you join a, a guy like Steve Jobs with a guy like Tim Cook, who is coming from the supply chain and who is absolutely excellent at the supply chain, Tim Cook is most likely uh, very high in uh, delivery skills and is lower than Steve Jobs in discovery skills. So the team, when they pair up, has made the company Apple go through the roof, okay? So what is going to happen now that Steve Jobs is not here anymore? I don't know. I just let you guess. Now you have this kind of uh, setup in other big companies which are very successful. If you take Facebook, you've got Mark Zuckerberg, who is a visionary of the company, and Sherry Sandberg, with, uh, on the execution part, on the delivery part. So when you've got the right pair of people and you mix the right skills, then it's absolutely wonderful. Okay, now if you understand that, you will understand why we have also serial entrepreneurs. A serial entrepreneur is somebody who is jumping from one venture to another uh, uh, and jumping from success to success, okay? And those guys uh, are typically very good at the uh, discovery skills, and when they come to the delivery skills, they get bored. So they move away, they move away, and they go for the next one. Okay? If um, you are an entrepreneur, you start something successfully, and you want to survive, you get better if you identify yourself as being somebody who is a discovery guy to uh, pair up with somebody who has some delivery skills. And then you could be the next Steve Jobs or next Mark Zuckerberg because you're backed up with complementary skills. So the methods being used are also very different. Uh, if you look at the uh, Horizon 3, we speak about Lean Startup, we speak about design thinking, which are the experimental methods. Again, we see here a transition because if you are doing uh, incremental innovation in Horizon 1, there is no reason that you would not be customer-centric and experimental even to add a new feature or to, uh, to redesign one of your new products. What is very interesting as well is that in Horizon 1, you are looking for a kind of perfection and you're going to use some processes like Six Sigma. So who is, who is using Six Sigma today in this company? Okay, so uh, you, are, you are one of the, uh, of the uh, uh, champions. Six Sigma is a way to reduce variation, to increase quality by reducing variation, okay? And uh, what is innovation? Innovation, by definition, is a variation. So the best managers in the Horizon 1 that are reducing defects, increase, increasing quality, are actually the best killer of innovation. And this is something that you need to, uh, to consider uh, because the objectives are very different from uh, one horizon to another. Again, horizon one, you look for perfection. You want to duplicate in mass 
something that works, which is perfect. In Horizon 3, what you want to do is looking for proofs. Perfection is not that a big issue. It's really validation of your concept, your idea, your product, your service, your business model that uh, you want to validate. Once this is done, however, you need to prepare for perfection such that you can scale up. Uh, you cannot scale up uh, bad quality, uh, or, or otherwise you will have some issues. Just speaking about uh, all the, uh, the calls you've got in the airports and, uh, and the flights right now about the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 uh, regarding the batteries, okay? So this is a kind of disaster you could have when you scale up without the quality. The goals are very different as well. Horizon 1, we spoke about profitability. This is where the cash is coming from. This is what is going to fund the effort in Horizon 2 in, uh, and uh, in Horizon 3. So profitability is key. And you, 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 the, the managers in Horizon 1 are going to do the best they can to bring back cash to the shareholders uh, in multiple ways. In Horizon 3, we are looking at the uh, le learning and velocity. We want to learn as fast as possible. We want to prove as fast as possible. So uh, we consider that we should be lean. We, have, uh, we don't have any money. Uh, so the time is our biggest asset uh, in this respect. In terms of metrics, very different as well. We look in Horizon 1 at the classic return on investment, earning per share, uh, EBIT, uh, while we look at innovation accounting in Horizon 3, and we look at the pirate metrics. So pirate metrics, this is the R uh, that we see here. Uh, it's about uh, acquisition, activation, referral, revenue, and retention. Uh, this is why you're going to monitor your cost of acquisition for a customer, your lifetime value. Guess what? All the companies uh, that are old companies, they don't monitor this kind of stuff in Horizon 1, most of them. Okay, Very, so again, it's a transition. We see an influence of the startup mentality going down to the, uh, to the corporates today. So in short, when you look at all uh, these parameters, which are both different kind of activities, different kind of targets, different kind of objectives, you need to have two kind of people uh, in charge. You've got on the Horizon 1 entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs, and on uh, Horizon 1, you've got traditional managers. And when I say traditional, remember, these are the guys who are getting the profit out of the market and bring it in the company today. So I'm not putting, uh, I'm not making any uh, judgment on uh, is it better to be an entrepreneur or traditional manager. We need both, okay? And remember the examples of Steve Jobs and Tim Cook and so on. We need both to, to be successful. So um, the question is, who are you? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you a traditional manager? Are you in between? Uh, again, we see a transition here. So um, interestingly, uh, um, a professor in a university who was uh, uh, the professor Sarah Sarasvati did a study. She asked herself why uh, we would find some entrepreneurs everywhere in the world, whatever is the, the age, the sex, the religion, uh, the culture. And, and she did a study uh, with uh, 20, 27 expert entrepreneurs, basically guys that, have, uh, that are still at the head of the companies they funded, uh, which is above $250 million uh, of, uh, of revenue. And she took as a control group uh, 37 former MBA students. And, and the work was about how they would introduce a new product in the, in the market. And what she found was pretty interesting. So to explain it, 
I will use the, uh, the dinner with friends uh, example. When you are a um, traditional uh, guy, or uh, we call that as well causal in terms of traditional reasoning, you would go for your recipes, you would look at the list of ingredients, you're gonna purchase them, you come back, and you follow the recipe, you cook, and then you've got your friends coming up for a dinner, and this is joy, and, uh, and everything is fine, okay? Uh, in the case of effectual reasoning, uh, which is called as well entrepreneurial reasoning, you're going to open your cupboards, you're going to look what you can do with what you have avoiding the spaghetti alla bolognese syndrome. Uh, so the very simple uh, uh, meal that, uh, that you can do. And you will ask your uh, friends to come up with something, whatever, and you will uh, put what they've brought uh, inside your, your dinner in real time, and you will adapt in real time. And even if one of your friends know how to cook, he will help you uh, with the specific cooking that he, he knows how to do. And at the end, you have a dinner with your friends and uh, everything is perfect. So the goal seems to be the same, but the way to reach the goal is completely different. And, and this is where, uh, what makes the difference. Now, the theory behind that is pretty, uh, is pretty easy to understand. In one case, you give an objective and then uh, you look at the means you need for, for this objective. So typically, if you say, uh, I want to increase by 10% my sales, I might ask for one million extra uh, for the marketing budget, okay? While you, have, uh, while you have an entrepreneurial reasoning, you're going to look at everything you have around you, what you know to do, uh, what your network knows how to do, uh, what are your resources. You don't need to ask extra money. You, you're going to do whatever you can with what you have. And then you're going to define an objective based on what you have. So in the first case, you have an objective which is set. In the other case, you find out what is the best objective with what you have. Big difference. So of course, uh, it's not black and white. Uh, you have all the level of grace uh, in between those two uh, reasonings. So it's called, it's, it is called effectuation, and you've got, uh, you've got uh, five uh, principles in this effectuation. Uh, if you are interested to know more, uh, the book of uh, the professor Sarah Sarasvati is excellent. Uh, and, uh, and you've got effectual.org, which explains as well uh, the principle of, of effectuation. So what is interesting in the study uh, she has done is that she has found out that 89% uh, of the entrepreneurs that were still at the head of their company had an effectual dominant reasoning. While 87%, no, sorry, 81% of the MBAs were traditional uh, reasoning, which makes sense. Because if you look at the reason one of the companies we have seen a little bit earlier, it's about 70% uh, which are uh, traditional manager, and that should be traditional managers like, okay? So you need to have this mix. Uh, so what is interesting is that entrepreneurs, you see them, when they can back up uh, themselves with, uh, with the deliveries, they do a, a good job. Okay, so the question is how to, um, to highlight, in this case, the value of, uh, of Lean Startup in this process. Because you, we, we see that uh, Lean Startup is coming from Horizon 1 and can go up to the end of, um, uh, of Horizon 3. So what I've done 
uh, is uh, I tried, as many uh, people that have been in corporates, to uh, give the influence, an influence of lean startup, of the experimental culture, the customer-centric uh, culture uh, inside the companies. And what I found out is exactly what happened to my friends. We are successful in our reason one. There is no reason that we change uh, our methods. So how make people understand that while you have had success on a repeated basis, you need to consider innovation in a different way. So I've used multiple ways. The uh, attention tests, uh, such as to show that when you have a tunnel vision, you cannot expand your vision to something else. Uh, it worked a little bit. Uh, I have used another exercise, which is very interesting, which is called the Marshmallow Challenge, uh, which is explaining how iteration uh, and experimentation is better than trying to think and to plan everything up front. And the latest one I've used is this uh, bike, bike experiment which uh, has another set of values, uh, and, and the reasons are, first, it is universal. Everyone knows how to ride a bike. And it kills the overconfident basis uh, bias in few seconds, if it is not in one second, okay? Um, so, in a very short exercise, I can explain, you know what, the success that you have had in the past doesn't mean you will succeed changing the methods in the future. This is very powerful. Another thing which is very interesting is that it shows how the brain seems to be hardwired. And because we have seen it, it's not easy to ride. We know that we can ride after a repeat exercise, and this is a good news. Even if you are a traditional manager, you can go to the experimental culture. You need to train, you need to practice, and you need to do it, so don't stay in the theory, you need to do it, okay? The brain is learning by doing. So for this bike, you need to practice, you need to rest because the brain connections are happening at night when, while you sleep. Practice again, sleep again, practice again, sleep again, and then it works. For uh, the experimental culture and uh, customer-centric culture, we are in the exact same situation. If, uh, if you are a traditional manager, and I have been as well one even if I've been an entrepreneur in the very beginning. Uh, I, I switched to the traditional management uh, side, I learned, and now I'm switching back to the entrepreneur side. So this is practicable and you can learn about it. So with those examples, I hope that uh, you understood why two of my friends failed uh, miserably in, uh, in their venture. Uh, this was something which has been uh, terrible for them. I would not like to see that uh, in the future to many people, uh, to, the, to all the people which are around me. So I'm, I'm trying to, um, to help them to survive to this uh, syndrome. I have not made my startup uh, in the midlife crisis. So as a takeaways, I would say you need to assess your style and, and know uh, where you're fit. Okay? You need to, to understand where you feel better in a company. Is it on the... Um, traditional side, is it on the innovation side or discovery side? Second point, you can learn, and you might have some limits in, in learning. Uh, I know that uh, I learned how to run, but uh, I will never be a sprinter or even a, a marathon runner, so I know that I have some limits. Uh, same in this case, you need to understand how much you can push uh, your limits. And last, and this is very a key point, Experimenting is absolutely key to overcome 
your cognitive biases, uh, like the overconfidence bias or the um, uh, planning fallacy and so on. So as soon as you can, you need to experiment. So what I'm doing uh, right now is I'm setting up a test that uh, would allow you to make a self-assessment of where you stand and uh, how, to, how to push your, uh, your limits. Uh, this test uh, will be available soon, but you can register already um, uh, if you wish on igsm.com uh, slash test. Uh, and as soon as the test is available, then you, can, uh, you, you will be able to, um, to make a, a very quick uh, self-assessment and to see where you stand uh, between the entrepreneurial or traditional management uh, area. And with that, I'm ready to accept your questions. Yes, please. You talked about how um, there are three horizons and you have uh, essentially a continuum. You know, on one side you're here, on the other side you're there. For Horizon 2, are there any unique skills that enable someone to be more successful specifically in Horizon 2? So Horizon 2 is the horizon of growth hacking as well. It's scaling up. And Horizon 2 is as well the, uh, the gearbox between Horizon 3 and Horizon 1. Uh, so uh, in many companies, for instance, you've got some uh, IT uh, systems uh, which are pretty set. And you want, uh, in production, you want to be as safe as possible. You, you don't want to mess up with production. So if you come with uh, something which is not ready, basically you are going to disturb the guys who are uh, rowing uh, as fast as possible. So you need to adapt to their speed at some point. Why, this is why you have this gearbox. If you cannot adapt uh, to those guys because uh, they don't want to be distracted in any way, it means you need to have a, a different path in the company uh, in order to, uh, to grow by yourself without disturbing the production of existing systems. So uh, it's about agility, it's about politics. So, and this is a typical uh, uh, context-dependent situation uh, on how to fit uh, inside the company in this case. Next question. We actually don't have time, sorry. That's our, we're out of time, sorry. Okay, so thank you.